So, Will. Yes? I have breaking news. Oh? This is it just in. The latest trailer for Fox's The New Mutants, which is definitely coming out? No. And it is also not whatever insert Brexit-related news that I'm sure happens any day that this show is released here. Mark, this is November. Brexit happened on Halloween. Yeah. Uh, you know what? We'll see. <laughs> I'm laying down my flag right now. Halloween is in the past. And on that day, Britain calmly left the European Union in a very orderly fashion, and everything has gone well since. Oh, I'm sure. Speaking of Britain, yes? I will be moving there. What? Yeah, I am. If! <laughs> we will be discussing that show later this episode. And every day of our lives. <laughs> I will be beginning graduate school at the London School of Economics through next year. So, obviously, we record this live, so the next episode will not be pre-recorded, and I will have already left. But, yeah, we have some in the can, and then we will be recording distantly in the future. Well, this is our last episode in the can. Goodbye. Is it really? It I will be. I thought you said this was when I left. Oh, I misunderstood. So, no, no, no. This is the last episode we record. That will be released while we're recording together. I thought you meant this came out, like... In a week or two. And no, like, we recorded that months ago. But I don't know. I don't pay attention. Anyway, this is our last episode we will be recording in the same room. Across the table. With Mr. Lep gone, <laughs> dead and forgotten. I still think he had a great date and got married. <laughs> sure. He moved to a farm upstate. We have no evidence otherwise. He lives in <laughs> upstate Maryland. Which is, what, 10 miles north of here? Like Cumberland? <laughs> I guess. That's like left state. Yeah. <laughs> to the left state. He moved to a farm in left state, Maryland. As a reminder, for those of you who may have forgotten, Mr. Lep was the large stuffed leopard who guided us into our new recording space. He did. He was here when we were here, first in our dining room. He briefly appeared on the show. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't a thing we regret at all. No, it did not sound unnatural. <laughs> well, there you go. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast so important that it will become a transatlantic show. We need to dig into the most pressing issues of our day, the paramount one being, now that Brexit has peaceably ended, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. Either way, we will dig in and we will see what is there. And this week, we are returning once again to the expanded James L. Brooksiverse with 2016's The Edge of Seventeen, written and directed by Kelly Freeman Craig, produced by James L. Brooks. Very noticeably produced by James L. Brooks. Well, sure, the Gracie Films logo is before the movie. They leaned into that. His name, I think, is the first one that comes up. In the end credits, yeah. Yeah. I watched this movie, I think, maybe a few months after it came out, and I was very pleasantly surprised. I had low hopes, honestly. I don't really know why. I think it, I was still getting over my internalized misogyny against teen girl dramas slash comedies. Dramedies. Those are the options. Yeah. But I enjoyed this movie a lot. Yeah, I had never seen it before. I think, I don't know exactly when you watched it, but this is a movie that may have also been hit by two different things at the box office. It's released on November 18th, 2016, in which the box office is A, honestly kind of sluggish after Trump's election. Yeah. And B, it's the same weekend that Fantastic Beasts opened. Oh, the first one? Yeah. The one people actually The one everyone went to see. Yeah. Not about crimes, unfortunately. I mean, arguably, more crimes in that one. You're not wrong. There should have been more crimes. That's one of the biggest problems with the crimes of Grindelwald, is there are insufficient crimes. Yeah, I think I watched this during senior week. Like, rented on iTunes. Sure. Back in the days. <laughs> Two years ago. <laughs> so, this film is The Edge of Seventeen. It's, as we said, written and directed by Kelly Freeman Craig. It's the second screenplay of hers that was produced, her first time directing. Her previous movie was Postgrad, starring Alexis Bledel, which I have not seen. Me neither. The reviews are not good. That movie actually was directed by an old friend of ours, Vicky Jensen, who co-directed Shrek and Shark Tale. Oh, Vicky. Vicky. 
There was one point where we were like, wow, this is the first movie we've done directed by a woman. I think it was like Bridget Jones or something. Yeah. And we totally gave Vicky short shrift for Shrek. Short Shrek. Short Shrek. Short Shrek. Shrift. Hashtag short Shrek. That's how they signify the Shrek TV specials like Shrek the Halls. Is that real? Yeah. Oh my God. It's one of our Christmas episodes this year. Oh no. I refuse. <laughs> it's not, but it should be. Yikes. I think that's like from late in the franchise too, so they're all like the baby ogres in it. Oh, uh, remember the babies and they made that the whole plot of the fourth one? The fourth one is substantially better than the third one. Yeah, it goes depending on your preference, one and two at the top, and then four, there's a pretty big drop between those, and then three all the way at the bottom. I would say the non-existent Puss in Boots movie is better than Shrek the Third. I mean, I haven't seen it, so... No one's seen it, Mark. It doesn't exist. Hashtag I've seen Puss in Boots. It is above Shrek the Third because Shrek the Third made us watch that movie, and Puss in Boots had the good sense to not make anybody watch it. Shrek the Third is not great. No, it's actively bad, in fact. <laughs> I have not seen it in a long time, and based on my Madagascar experience... I have no faith in any DreamWorks movie being even remotely entertaining. If I remember it having one good joke, it probably has none good <laughs> jokes. That is my new stance on DreamWorks. We gotta talk soon about what our next one will be. Oh yeah, we don't have any in the docket, because they don't do Christmas movies, except Shrek the Halls. Shrek the Halls. There's probably like a Madagascar DVD extra that's about Christmas. Probably. It's a pretty big market. Yeah. So anyway, The Edge of Seventeen. <laughs> Back to The Edge of Seventeen. DreamWorks, of course, does not do movies about teenagers unless they're How to Train Your Dragon movies. Yes. So this is not a DreamWorks movie. No, it is not. It is a Gracie Films movie. That's right. So Kelly Freeman Craig is kind of a great example of the like older directors mentoring young people thing actually working for bringing in different kinds of voices. Because a lot of times you get stuff where they want to make Jurassic World and Steven Spielberg is like, absolutely not. But it's like, this guy kind of feels like he would do stuff that I would do and we're all forced to deal with Colin Trevorrow. But instead, Kelly Freeman Craig is the kind of person who post-grad happens because Ivan Reitman likes what she's got to say and brings her up. And then she has this script, which at the time is called Besties and gets bought by James L. Brooks in 2011. A good title change. It's a good title change. And that's conditional on Craig getting to direct it with Brooks acting as like a mentor helping with the process. It is good of James L. Brooks to choose to mentor a woman because that is one of the problems is that these old boy directors are like, oh, I don't see myself in this person. I see myself in this young other white man. So it honestly doesn't surprise me after hearing him talk, after watching broadcast news, that he would be the type to like, choose to mentor a young woman instead of another young white man to take his position. Yeah. So the movie was in development for a couple of years. It's not until August 2015 that Haley Steinfeld signs on. And that's when things really start getting underway. By October of that year, they're already filming. That is a good get for this movie. Very much so. She is probably one of the main reasons this movie works. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the movie doesn't work if Haley Steinfeld isn't selling it 100%. Because it's a really weird tone to nail. It is. Because you're not supposed to be on board the Nadine train completely. The movie clearly makes her out to be complicated, and she's not the hero. She is someone who makes a lot of mistakes, and you can see the trouble she gets into. And what's interesting about Haley Steinfeld in The Edge of Seventeen, she plays Nadine, is that unlike a lot of, like, anti-heroes that we're dealing with in the culture at the time, you think this is a couple of years after the end of Breaking Bad, Mad Men has just wrapped up, like, those kind of ideas, Nadine doesn't think she's a hero either. No. And that's sort of her central problem. She clearly has a lot of self-issues. Self-esteem issues, self-hatred issues. You get the scene of her throwing up into the toilet saying, why does anyone like me? Why do you like me, my friend? Honestly, name is the... Chris, Krista. 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 Played by Haley Lou Richardson. Yes. The most devastating line that she has in that vomiting into the toilet scene is when she's leaning her head against the side of the toilet bowl and she says, I have to spend the rest of my life with myself. Yeah, that is crushing. Yeah. And like such a particular kind of wording that you realize is like kind of true of all of us, which is weird to realize. Yeah. Nadine is dealing with some real issues. She has always felt inferior to her older brother, who seems to be thriving. Well, sure, he's a firefighter. Yeah. <laughs> with rage issues. Her brother, what's his name, Dorian? Dorian. Is played by Blake Jenner, who, of course, 
everybody knows, plays the guy who gets indecent proposaled by Renee Zellweger in the Netflix series, What If? The guy who she's trying to break so that her daughter, Lisa, will learn to hate humanity like her and they can become powerful women together. He's a bartender in the first episode, and then he's a firefighter, and he's the best firefighter, and then that never comes up. They offhandedly mention that he no longer bartends because he is in the fire academy. I like the one episode where they show the fire academy and you're like, so this is the plot line for this character. And then that's the only time they show it. Uh, what a great show. What a weird show. What so far sh- as I know, they have neither canceled it nor announced a second season. I have a feeling this state will exist for a long time. So Haley Steinfeld at this point is working her way through a lot of these sort of YA movies. She came onto my radar I didn't actually see True Grit, but like I knew like the little girl in True Grit. I saw it, and she's very good. It's in my pile of good DVDs, which is distinct from the pile of bad rom-coms, which we need to dip back into, my boy. Yes, indeed. I first saw her in Ender's Game, which, in its own weird way, is kind of a like YA coming-of-age deal. Yeah, kinda. And that's the same year that she does Begin Again, and, according to Wikipedia, some Romeo and Juliet adaptation that I was not aware of. Is it Nomeo and Juliet? No, Nomeo and Juliet's cast is weirdly more stacked than that. Yeah, isn't it? It's Emily Blunt. It's Emily Blunt and James McAvoy. And then Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock Gnomes. Yes, indeed. Sherlock Gnomes, a game of nomos. Oh, it didn't really work? Nope, you tried. That's what matters. So anyways, she's doing that. Then she gets cast in the Pitch Perfect sequels. She does some book adaptations. She does When Marnie Was There, like that kind of deal. And this is like this really nice inversion of the like sweet, plucky, like YA heroine where she occasionally faints towards that, but that's never where she's going to go. No, and this is a movie where you'd expect to be on Nadine's side. And you are, for the most part. But there's a lot of times where you're just like, girl, what is wrong with you? And you see everyone else's point of view. I actually weirdly thought of Paddington while watching this movie. Okay. Because this is a movie that just begs you to have compassion for everybody. Yes. Because no character is allowed to just be one thing. At some point, like, we're going to meet Woody Harrelson's family. We're going to get the speech from Blake Jenner about his perspective. We're going to get the mom's perspective, played by Kira Sedgwick. We're going to get all these different people's ideas. And it's just begging you to have compassion. But, like, where Paddington is saying, like, be kind and polite because everybody's good. This is saying, like, be understanding with people because everyone's a mess. Yeah. There is a scene where her mom says, the way I cope with my severe depression is by remembering that every other person on this planet is also severely depressed. And it's like, listen, Kira Sedgwick, you need more therapy than you are currently in. That is a terrible coping mechanism. Yeah, it seems like the dentist on Match.com is not a therapist. Yeah, exactly. Oh god, she's messed up. This movie was not a major box office hit, partially because of the Fantastic Beasts of it all. It opened in seventh in its opening weekend and ultimately made $14 million on a $9 million budget. So like it made back its money, wasn't anything huge. And then it probably made some money overseas. Yeah, uh, like think, four, four million more. Yeah. It winds up around 18. It is really well liked by critics. It does really well there. It gets nominated for best first time feature at the Directors Guild Awards that year. And loses to Garth Davis for Lion. It actually won for Best First Film at the New York Film Critics Circle. And Haley Steinfeld was nominated for a Golden Globe in Comedy Musical. It's 2016, so she lost to Emma Stone for La La Land. It is a well-deserved nomination, in my opinion. She's very good. Maybe not for the Oscar that year, but the Golden Globe Best Comedy Musical, that is where this kind of performance belongs. It's nice to see this kind of performance in that. Yeah. She handles this character so well. She gives a very nuanced performance, just as she always does. And Haley Steinfeld just is a very interesting person because she also has her music career that she kind of half-heartedly does when she feels like it seems and she's friends with a robot and she's friends with a bumblebee robot that movie's good i heard it was fun i don't give a crap about transformers and like there's a sequence for like 10 or 15 minutes at the beginning where i was like if i were into transformers this space battle would blow my mind but instead i was just like where's Haley steinfeld and then she showed up and was pretty great that is the kind of actor she is i'd say I am very excited to see her in the Jenna Maroney television show, 
Dickinson, in which she plays a young, sexy Emily Dickinson. But, like, who is that show for? I have no idea. Her mom is played by It's an Apple show, right? Yeah. I will not believe any Apple show is real until they put a release date on that platform. I... By now, it might have come out. I refuse to believe that this is a real show. My working theory is that one day we're all just going to wake up and Apple's going to be like, Apple TV is here. And we're like, cool, we didn't plan for that. Nobody's watching it right now. It's going to be the U2 album all over again where they just all of a sudden have you signed up for Apple Plus or whatever they're calling it. Right. Apple TV Plus, I think. Everything's plus now. What is... I hate it. It's not that good. No, it's not. It is a terrible name. You can maybe make one work and the one that it should have been was Hulu Plus because there was Hulu with ads and Hulu Plus didn't have it. Actually, Hulu had just fewer shows, and Hulu Plus still had ads. Oh, really? But you had access to all of their shows. I didn't know that. Because I was on the Hulu train very early, and it would be like they had the five most recent episodes of American Dad, whereas Hulu Plus would have all of the episodes of American Dad, which was about the caliber of show you could expect on the platform Hulu. I mean, it was the network shows. Right. Okay, so I'm looking at the 2016 Best Actress lineup. Okay. And we've got Emma Stone wins for La La Land. Right. A movie and a performance, I think, that are good. Yes. La La Land. It's fine for me. I think it's pretty good. I think Emma Stone gives a good performance because I think she always gives a good performance. That's true. I think it's pretty good and it is like the La La Land Moonlight Wars that did it wrong. Not that like it should have won or anything, but it has a more negative reputation because of that. I never really bought into the gosling of it all either. I think if John Legend had been the lead of La La Land, I would have been much more into it. The best joke in La La Land is that John Legend song is like kind of a banger. Yeah. Which reveals exactly like the specific kind of douche that Ryan Gosling's character is. Right. I never liked him. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. You don't have to. I know, but I was very annoyed also that there's this white man explaining jazz to this white woman. See, I think the movie is in on that. It is, but it's also just like, why don't we just give John Legend this movie and everything would be better? Sure. (laughs) Okay, so we've got Emma Stone. We've got Isabelle Huppert for Elle. Okay. Ruth Negga for Loving. A great, small performance. That's the movie about loving. Richard and Mildred loving. Yeah. Yeah. Natalie Portman for Jackie. A movie that doesn't totally click for me, but that performance is... Like, great latter-day Portman. Or, like, post-Black Swan, she's just gone fully into the weird, and I appreciate it. Are you a member of the Church of Latter-day Portman? Uh, you know, I, I am. I'm wary of Lucy in the Sky. I am so fascinated that they made this movie. I'm alarmed that we have seen no promotional materials in, like, eight months. I think something came out recently. Oh, okay. As of recording. I assume more has come out as of the episode coming out, because I think the movie will have been shown by then. It weirdly has, like, been coming and going from fall schedules, and I think part of it is that it and Ad Astra, like, Ad Astra was supposed to come out in the spring, and it got moved to the fall, and it's kind of like a how many sad space movies can we support in one season? But this movie isn't even really that spacey, isn't it? More about, like, I guess it's probably less about the woman driving across country in a diaper to, I don't know, murder her ex-lover or something. Yeah, the movie is not the comedy that that story deserves. Yeah. I think it's, like, almost like the first man element of... These people have this experience, and then once you do it, that experience of going into space, you kind of can't connect to anybody else on Earth. Right. So it is showing at TIFF on September 11th, and okay. it is being released on October 4th, so it will have been out for over a month when this comes out. All right, so <laughs> check a month back on our Twitter for our hot Lucy in the Sky takes. So anyway. Okay. Anyway, so we've got Emma Stone, Isabel Huppert, Ruth Nega. Natalie Portman, and then Meryl Streep for Florence Foster Jenkins. A movie that is fun, but Steinfeld is better in this than she is in that. I can believe that. I have not seen the movie, but... I recommend it! I'd probably swap those two out. Yeah, I probably would too. I mean, there's probably other performances that aren't Meryl Streep that got looked over because of the Streep of it all. It's one of the weaker Streep nominations. Yeah. So, anyway... The Edge of Seventeen is about Nadine, who is struggling to cope with the death of her father still, which happened four years earlier. And she was in the car with him when he had a heart attack. Yeah, so it is very believable that she's still struggling with this. Absolutely. She's a kid! And she had a rough relationship with her mom beforehand, which has not improved. And she's also always felt an inferiority complex with her brother, Blake Jenner, because he was handsome and popular and athletic. 
Right. And she was, they as Woody Harrelson put it, a kid who dresses like a very old man. No, that is her describing her best friend, like, as a five-year-old. Oh, that's right. Which I was very into, because I think that is exactly how you should dress your children, as being described as looking like very small, elderly old men. That, or like clowns who took off their makeup. Exactly. Kids get to wear weird clashing patterns, and you should lean into that. So... She has a very bad relationship with her brother and only one friend. And then that one friend sleeps with her older brother. Woo! And then they start dating and... She, and her friend she, disappears from the movie. Yeah, she is upset, to say the least. Which I can understand because I think that Nadine takes it too far, which is basically the plot of this movie. Not a terrible name for this movie. Nadine takes, takes it, it too, too far. far. Um, Krista has seen how terrible Dorian treats Nadine and how bad Nadine treats Dorian. So clearly she knows that this would be an issue going into it. Yeah. She is coming in having seen the inside of their bad relationship. So I can understand why Nadine is upset, to say the least. Yeah. But it also makes sense that Krista can see Dorian outside of this relationship. But you still kind of have to be like, this is your friend, and you know how much this will hurt her. I get it. It's teenager's gonna teenager. That's true. I like that it happens. I find it very plausible. I do, too. I think that it's just, you know, it's something where I think Krista should have explained or, you know, waited until she could talk to her friend before doing it. Sure. But, like, that's not my biggest issue with the family no. stuff. My biggest issue with the family stuff is that they have a large bowl of fruit in their kitchen in which oranges are on top of grapes. That just sit out. And that feels like a mistake. That is a mistake, objectively. Like, come on. That's our clue that something is up with Kira Sedgwick. Yeah. Who is a bad mom. Oh, yeah. she's a She is one of the bad moms. <laughs> and every December, she has a bad mom's Christmas. <laughs> exactly. I kind of like that the movie ends with them still not liking each other. Yeah. I that would be too easy a resolution. Yeah. So the two of them still- It feels very Brooksy. Yeah, they just have no resolution in their relationship, which I appreciated, because if you were a mom, you should never tell your child that you think their dead parent would be disappointed in them. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. And then be shocked when she runs away from you. Yeah. Wow. That was harsh. It was. Uh, I feel like we are getting deep into this movie. Oh, and yeah. I we got should... lost. No worries. There's a lot to talk about. We should probably start talking about the romance of it all, that being our mission. Exactly. I know you're planning to abandon America, but that doesn't mean you need to abandon our mission. Our mission is every week to break the romantic plotline of a movie down into five points to make it easily digestible and also to give us a structure from which to frame our episodes <laughs> and to ramble far afield from. <laughs> So, this movie, the first point is going to be when Nadine and Erwin first talk on screen. They've talked before, like, in the realm of the movie. Tim's Fun Park. Yeah. I love that place. We should go sometime. Yeah, we should. But with, like, like a group of people, like, like with, like, several people. Right, right. Just us. Like, just, just, just us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, our group. Yeah, our group. That be. I think that be, be so much more fun. Yeah. Right? You know. Yeah. But she sits next to Irwin in class, and Irwin clearly has a crush on her from the beginning. Sure. Even before this happens, we hear her talking to Krista about the guy Nick that she wants to have sex with. Yeah. Nick is like her crush from afar. They have never spoken. He's a very cool, aloof bad boy. He won't accept her on Facebook, and he listens to only indie music. Yes, and he works at Petland, and they're talking about how she should go up to the cash register at Petland and ask him for a fighting fish and to put his penis in her. Yeah, so she has a thing for this guy, but then Irwin- It is clearly unrequited. Clearly unrequited, and so she's in class, and Irwin makes awkward conversation with her. Asks, like, how was your weekend, etc. Is this when he asks her where she got her sweatshirt? I'm kind of putting all the classroom flirting into one point, because it sets up later, so- Yeah, he asks where she got her sweatshirt, and she's like, I don't know, I, I got it a long time ago. And he does this incredible reaction- this is Erwin played by Hayden Zato, and he just goes, cool, cool, coolio, in this weird drawn out, like, he is wonderfully awkward in very specific ways. Like, there's the moment when he's showing his film at the student film festival, and he keeps putting his fist on his side and then dropping it and putting it back and dropping it. I truly don't understand how she was not immediately in love with him. 
I love how specifically weird he is. He is very specifically awkward, but also he shows up on screen and I was, it's very clear rom-commy way. We've seen movies before. This is the one she'll end up with. The conflict to me is why isn't she just with him already? He is adorable and is nice to her and, uh, very clearly the right match and it feels very contrived that she's like oh he's a loser well i think it's just that they don't know each other yeah and high schoolers can be weirdly resistant to interacting with new things and people that is true only guys you don't know who look mysterious are interesting exactly she's excited by the inaccessible because also we get the sense that she is coming to terms with herself as a sexual being and Having a crush on somebody that she can't actually get with is a very safe way to engage with that. That is true. It's like, I can want to have sex with him because it's never going to happen. Right. Whereas if you want to have sex with Erwin, like, that is plausible and is much scarier. Yeah, that makes sense. It is a lot of, like, the developingness of it all. Right. These kids feel like kids. They do. Even though I'm sure they were, like, 20 to 25 while filming. I think Haley Steinfeld is, like, 19 or 20. Yeah. Some of the so, others, like, Blake Jenner is clearly older. <laughs> Blake Jenner is a full-grown adult. He is, like, 45. <laughs> We're supposed to believe him as only, like, a year older than me. He could have been in Greece. He could have easily have been the dad that has a heart attack at the beginning of the movie. So, another important moment in the in-class flirtationship is when their teacher, Woody Harrelson, who we need to dig into. Oh so, Woody God. Harrelson is showing them young Mr. Lincoln which I would like to note, is a movie that starts with the Civil War song Battle Cry of Freedom, which, not a joke, is one of my favorite songs. It is great. And Erwin then is asking again about her weekend, and he tells her that he golfed. Well, he mini-golfed. Which is, again, this thing of, we see him posturing, and then, with no pressure put on him, he immediately collapses. Yeah. And then does a really awkward miming of mini-golf. And she's like, oh, yeah, I love that place. And he's like, oh, we should go sometime. And she goes, yeah, as a group, we should get a group together. She immediately starts trying to pivot to like, this is not a date. And he's like, or we could go alone. But the nice thing is, he says, or we could go alone. Like, he's shooting his shot. And she says, or as a group. And he accepts it. And it's like, yeah, let's go as a group. And isn't like pressuring her or anything. He realizes what it is. And he doesn't actually ask her out again after this. Which I really liked about Erwin. Yeah. He takes the note. And just moves on until she then reaches out to him. Yeah. So. Do we want to talk about Woody Harrelson? Yeah. Oh my god. Or should we talk about him later? I think we should talk about him later. Okay. After she shows up at his house, which is the creepiest line to cross. Anyway, that brings us to point two. After she's struggling with her brother and her best friend being an item... And they go to a party, and it's awkward. Do parties like that exist in high school? I genuinely do not know. Me neither. Like, I assume they do? I don't know, because the other thing is, I went to high school in a country with an 18-year-old drinking age. Oh. Which meant that there weren't as many house parties, because people could just go to bars and clubs. Sure. Much more easily. Because at 16, you can pull off 18 on your fake ID. It's harder to pull off 21, like in the US, so you're more likely to have house parties but yeah pe- all just like my the friends full house clubs yeah requires such like absent or oblivious or indifferent or straight up accommodating parents i assume it happens I but think, it's baffling to I me i know that there are some parents that are accommodating because it's of the whole like if they're gonna drink i want them to do it under my roof mindset yeah but i would never let them have a whole house house party it is very odd nadine at this party is great Because when she's, like, psyching herself up to engage at the party, she does this thing where she stands on the edge of a circle, smiling a bunch before giving up and walking away and staring at some pictures. She is so perfectly, relatably awkward at this party. Yeah. I'm the person who goes to a party and just looks at the bookshelves. Yeah. This scene is so good because it does point out that Krista is being a terrible friend as well. But trying really hard not to be. She's trying, but at the end you see it loop back to how it could have been much better. Like Krista could have handled this situation better because at this scene she's awkwardly standing at the side of a circle that her best friend is in, but her best friend never says, hey everyone, like this is my friend Nadine. 
But at the end, Erwin does do that, and then she smiles, and that's how the movie ends, and it's perfect. Spoiler alert. They get together. They get together. But that party scene is so uncomfortable and illustrates a lot of the problems of high school so well. So this is when she bails on the party, and she starts typing out a message to Nick asking why he hasn't accepted her friend request. Yeah. And, like, making excuses for him in the body of it. Like, yeah, Facebook is really weird. Like, that's totally why you haven't accepted my friend request. Dude, I don't actually know. And then she gives up. She doesn't send a message and instead calls Erwin, who says hi approximately 47 times. And then this is point two. They go to a carnival together. Yes, they do. It's the place with the mini golf. It's the place with the mini golf, but also so much more. So tell me something I don't know about you, Erwin. I, uh... What are your, your hopes and dreams? Take me on a tour of your psyche. She's, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just your average guy, I guess. Right, but if you had to expand for the two minutes that we're on the ride? Right. Yeah, there's a Ferris wheel. There's a Ferris wheel and, like, a full carnival with... I would say it is a carnival with mini golf, not mini golf with other things. Yes. But they do play mini golf, and then they ride the Ferris wheel, and you get... One of the most awkward moments in a movie of awkward moments. Yeah, he tries to kiss her. Yeah, they are having a conversation and he tries to kiss her. They like It's like a lunge. It is a lunge. They make And she does this like startled animal thing. (laughs) Yeah. There's like audible contact. And my favorite moment is when he starts actually yelling at the guy, Can I get off of this thing, please? (laughs) So great. (laughs) Trying to get them to stop the Ferris wheel. This is what you do when a girl turns you down on a Ferris wheel, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, you don't climb it. Ugh. And then they play mini golf, and they're finishing up, and she tells him how much fun she had, and that she sees him as a really, really, really old man. It's... Like a very kind old man. Yeah, you are a very sweet elderly gentleman. Oh, she also, on the Ferris wheel... Based off of her friendships. ...tries to describe his family... And she goes on about what she thinks his parents are like. Yeah, and she says, like, oh, your mom pressures you to play an instrument. It is very harsh. And then your, your dad dad's is very aloof. rough and aloof. But you know he loves you, even if he doesn't say it. And then she just goes, oh, God, was that racist? I didn't think it was racist, but I think everything I said was racist. And it's the most awkwardly true-to-life high school thing. Yeah, where you're just like, I'm imagining your life. And then you're like, wait a minute, that was just stereotypes. Yeah, and... He never really says it's right or wrong. No. He says it's not racist. Yeah. And that's it. But more stuff happens. She gets in bigger fights with with Krista. I do kind of feel like something that's happening there, they're not engaging with it as well as in this movie, but it made me think a little bit of Good Boys. Okay. Which came out this past summer and is a movie about three middle school kids who are reaching a point in their life where the people that they were friends with because, like, they lived near each other or their parents were friends are finding that they have less and less in common, and the movie is about them making peace with the fact that their friendship will change and perhaps become less strong. And I think Nadine and Krista are in a similar moment, but aren't as sure how to deal with it. That moment does happen when you become friends at, like, five Right, exactly. Very different people. Yeah, little kids are friends because of proximity. Right, so it makes sense that they're dealing with this, but it gets to the point where there's one afternoon where Nadine is basically just like, I can't be at home. She calls Erwin to talk to him, and it's just like... And she also, like, delivers an ultimatum to Krista, like, you have to pick one of us. Yeah, and then when she chooses her now boyfriend... She, like, kind of tries to say, like, I'm not picking between the two of you, but for Nadine, that's picking Dorian. Right. So then Nadine is just like, do you have a pool? I want to swim, but I don't want to swim in my own pool. And I feel like this movie is supposedly set in Oregon. I could not tell. There's an Oregon flag in the classroom. That is the thing I'm going with. And they filmed in British Columbia, which feels like Oregon. That would make sense. For cheap. Because I... Could not, for the life of me, figure out where this thing is set. There's also the night that she, like, runs away and she goes to Woody Harrelson's house and all that stuff happens. I cannot figure out what time anything happens that night. Because she goes to her mom's work. She goes home, gets changed. It's, like, light out when all that's happening. When she meets Nick in the car, they're parked. It's dark out. They do all that. Then she goes to the donut place, presumably hangs out there for a while, then shows up at Woody Harrelson's where his family is just eating dinner and, like, the baby is up. Maybe it's a place where it gets dark at, like, four. Maybe. I was trying to place this movie, and in many ways I could not. You don't need to. Who cares? It's very good. Yeah. but this, Anyway, they're in the pool. This brings us to point three. They're in the pool. And again, this is a moment where it's just like, how are you not immediately loving this boy? Because it turns out he has a full six-pack abs. And his house is huge. She's like, oh, I would have hung out with you sooner if I had known about this. <laughs> he is very rich. Where did you tell me you were rich? 
thought I did. I always try to tell everyone. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, you didn't tell me that you were in a film festival either. You didn't tell me anything, Elvin. Maybe it's because I couldn't get a <laughs> word in. Do I really talk that much? Oh, yeah. He has the place to himself because his parents are, what, back in Korea? Yeah, they're in, yeah, he says they're in Korea. But he doesn't, you know, party or anything. No, he's a good boy. His bedroom seems very small for a house that big, based off the way it's shot. Yeah, it did. And, like, there's nothing in there. Except his art. He's a weird kid. They bond. She says, do you want to have sex? And it's like, haha, just kidding. Which is a very uncomfortable moment. It was a movie reference to, like, being under the waterfall and propositioning someone. Right. And he is, when she first says, like, do you want to have sex? He's like, um, yeah? And then he kind of recovers and shows her his art and explains that he's going to be, have a movie in a film festival on this Saturday. That's right. Early in the morning, you should come. And I think she agrees to go. She's like, yeah, totally, in a way that... You could see her showing up or not showing up. Yeah, it's definitely a maybe, but she does say yes. And, you know, they're bonding. She clearly likes him more. Yeah, she's having a good time hanging out with him, but still is fixated on Nick. As we find out in point number four. We've actually previously seen her go to the Petland, or whatever it's called. Yeah. Not PetSmart. And she meets him, like, in the fish aisle and introduces herself. Right. And he clearly has no idea who she is. Yeah, but then she sends him this horribly graphic message. Is this point four? Yeah. Nick, I'm just gonna say it. I like you. I've liked you for months. I think about you every second. I don't know, maybe I even love you. You're so complicated, but simple. And I just feel this connection between us. I feel like I already know you, and I just want to be with you. So yeah, so in point number four, she types out this, like, graphic description of the sex that she wants to have with him. And she's doing this in a point where she's very frustrated. She's frustrated with Krista. She's frustrated with her brother Dorian. She's really upset with her mom. So to her, this feels like a way of taking control of her life that she feels being pulled in a lot of different directions. But as with all these other messages she's typed to Nick, she doesn't mean to send it, but she accidentally does! And so she goes to her teacher and says, I'm going to kill myself. So this is the first scene of the movie. We start off with Haley Steinfeld going into Woody Harrelson's classroom and saying like, hey, I figure I should let someone know I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to jump in front of a, she says like a truck, but not a bus because I don't want other people to have to see it. Right, she's, she's trying to do it in like the least upsetting way possible for other people, but she's also talking about how like it has to be lethal because she doesn't want to be like, hospitalized and like unable to speak or something like that <laughs> she says i would want the nurse to smother me but how am i gonna get the nurse to smother me if i can't speak and harrelson responds by reading his own suicide note which is him complaining about how his lunch has been interrupted that's the first scene in the movie which sets an aggressive tone for the thing it does and we've talked about how i judge all movie teachers because most are bad <laughs> Yes. Woody Harrelson is there for Haley Steinfeld in some moments where she really needs him, but is also a bad movie teacher. He's at, like, THC in Easy A levels bad. He's quite bad. I would say he's a little bit better than THC. He is better Because than... he is supportive in a way that Hayden Church is not. Yeah, he clearly likes children, which Thomas Hayden Church does not seem to in Easy A. Right. And his wife likes children too much. <laughs> exactly. So what we don't have the context for at the beginning is that she has been eating her lunches with him for some time, ever since she stopped hanging out with Krista. Yeah, because she has no one else to eat lunch with. Which is, I think, really important context for that reaction on his part. Right. And what we see when we get to that scene in sequence is that he then also like gives her his phone number and says, like, if you need anything and like need to reach out to a person, you can reach out to me. Right. So he gives her his phone number. He even reads the message that she sent to yeah. Nick. And he, at first he's like, it's just like her being really into him. And he's like, this is fine. Like you're overreacting. And then he gets to the sex part and he's like, okay, I see what you're talking about. Yeah, he's basically like, I get where you're coming from. Harrelson's really good in this. Yeah, he's almost always really good. He's amazing. Woody Harrelson is a man who had no acting career, and then the guy who played coach on Cheers died, so they had an opening on Cheers. He auditions with no acting career, gets cast on the biggest show on television, and goes from there. He's great. He's awesome. I always enjoy his performances. Yeah, he's weirdly kind of incredible in Solo. He is good in Solo. He's also really good in... He's pretty good in the Hunger Games movies, too. 
Like, his franchise work is strong. Yeah, he's good in franchises. He's a good character to add to something. You can, like, drop him in somewhere, and he's just gonna bring, like, an edge. And he always plays the same person. Yeah. But that person usually works. Because he's Woody Harrelson. Yeah. His character on Cheers was named Woody. So, in a shocking twist, she gets a message back from Nick saying... You're cute. You're cute. Let's do something later. And so... She she's hyped. Agrees to. This is the best thing that's happened to her on a day of terrible things happening to her. Yeah, so she's excited. She gets dressed nicely for the date. They're on the date. They get in the car, and he, like, drives out and just parks somewhere. And then they're kissing, and he just starts lowering her seat, which is some of the best physical comedy I've seen in a movie, because it's just so slow. And she's just like, wow, it goes all the way back here. <laughs> and it just keeps going all the way down. And then he, like, basically, you know, tries to initiate sex yeah he does the same like boob grab move as in terminator only this time it doesn't have sexy blue lighting (laughs) so we're just like wait what is this and she's just like whoa 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 slow down what are you doing and he's like you wrote me a novel about how you want to have sex with me like we're not here to get to know each other yeah and she's like oh but i thought you did want i like want to get to know you before we do this right away yeah he's like no why would i do that which i think again is speaking to the idea that the way that she is Talking to Krista at the beginning about, like, yeah, I just want to, like, have sex with him. She's not actually at a place where that's a thing she wants to do. No, she's not ready for that. But you do get another great comedy moment of him raising the seat, and it takes forever to get all the way up. But then he tries again. She says no. Well, she kind of sort of initiates. Yeah, when he says, like, he's like... We'll just leave. We'll just leave. And she, like, initiates again. But then this is when he, like, admits, oh, I don't want to... Get to know you. Get to know you at all. I'm just here for sex. And so she leaves. She's really upset. She goes to a donut shop just to sit and she calls Woody Harrelson. slash Chinese takeout shop. Yeah, of course. They go hand in hand. And calls Woody Harrelson and he comes and picks her up and brings her back to his house. Where we get the glimpse of every person is a person. That is one of the main themes of this movie. Right. She ripped into him early on in the movie talking about his low salary and the fact that he's alone because who would want to be with a bald man they're gross (laughs) and she gets to see that he is happily married with a child yeah and with a very nice wife who's like you know things are gonna be okay even though they suck now yeah who says i was in a rough spot before i met him and now i'm super happy and have a baby and it's very sweet and then he's just like all right your mom has to come get you give me your mom's phone number and she eventually makes her way home Courtesy of Woody Harrelson. Well, because Dorian shows up first. Right. And she refuses to get in the car with him. And Dorian gives his speech of like, this is my perspective on my life. Like, I plan my life around taking care of you and our mom. Because neither of you can take care of yourself. Or each other. And we have seen that their mom relies heavily on Dorian. To do everything. And And he points that out at one point where he's like, if you're the adult in the house, why do you call me when something happens? Right. To deal with it. It's very clear that he is her favorite as well. Oh, and has been since before the dad died. Right. It's very uncomfortable. Anyway, the next day. No, like that night, he, you know, lays it all on the line, goes away, drives home with Krista. Woody Harrelson then drives her home. And this is where you get her like knock on the door and say, I'm so sorry. She has a line where she says that sometimes she feels like she's floating above her body looking down and hating all the decisions she's making, but not sure how to stop it. And then he hugs her, and it's very sweet. It is very nice. And it's not everything's okay, but this is a place we can build from. Right, and it's clear that they are going to move forward and try and make things better. This brings us to point five the next morning, when she's very excitedly getting ready for the film festival. I got the message. All right, I know know she's me. But I already figured out how great you are. You're so fucking great. You're like the best person I know. Yeah, she goes to see Erwin's movie. And she goes downstairs. And one of my favorite moments is she's like, bye. And they go, have a good day. And she's she leaves. And then realizes, comes back and says, I hope you guys have a good day too. It's so sweet. Somebody just trying to do better. Right. Someone who is used to being rude to these people. And then having to make an effort. And Krista says, can I text you later? And... She says yes. But it's the kind of thing where, like, she could leave and feel bad about it. Right. But instead, she makes the effort to go back. Right. 
And then she goes and watches Irwin's movie. She's the only one to cheer when they say his name. Yeah, he goes up. He is asked to give some words before his movie. He is incapable of saying anything. Yeah. Just puts his hand on his it's, waist goes, a bunch of times. Uh, 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 and then hands the microphone back. And I think that's partially because by that point, he did not expect Nadine to be there. Partially that. Also, it's very clear that he was not asked to prepare remarks. No. And this is a film festival. Clearly, these are not the most socially adept children in high school. They should have either asked them to prepare something or not have them said anything. And that's when we see Irwin's film, which is pretty fun animation. It is. It's very good for a high schooler. Yeah, he did a nice job. For animation. And it's Would have taken forever to make. Oh, yeah. Like, multiple years. Which is plausible. It's plausible, but it sounds like the art teacher says they should enter this like, kind of last animation minute. movie at last minute. But it's cute. It's about a woman rejecting a guy. Over and over. In an alien planet, not Saturn. And then she gets kidnapped. He rescues her. And she's like, oh, take me. I love you. And he goes, no, and is in a hot tub with big-breasted aliens. Yeah. It's clearly about Nadine. Yeah. And him being upset that she has not dated him. Right. So he finds her in the lobby. This was a moment where I was a little bit worried that the movie was going to get a little bit like, uh uh, like you didn't go for the nice guy kind of deal. Right. Which is like such an ugly attitude, but it doesn't. No. And one of my favorite things is he does that really classic where you like take a really big step out to the side to move around a crowd like very dramatic i feel like i see kids do that a lot i did that a lot as a kid and then he walks over and she basically says oh i got the message in the movie i'm so sorry like you know i'm not gonna try anything because i know you're not interested and then he goes it wasn't about you which is an amazing twist if it were true. I know, but her reaction is great. She's just like, oh my god, I'm making everything about myself again, basically. Like, I've been work I tried to work on this. I don't want to be this. Person. I said have a good day. And then he goes, I'm just messing with you. Obviously, it's about you. But then he, as you said, yeah. welcomes her to his friends. He's like, come be my friends. Everybody, this is Nadine. And she smiles and the movie's over. Yay. And there's no resolution with her mom Mona. Which is fine. Which is good. So. We watched The Edge of Seventeen. Indeed. Do you find the romance believable? I really do. I do too. I think it's very sweet, and I like how vague all of the stuff with Irwin is. Like, at all these times, it's never really clear if anything is a date, which kind of speaks to, like, some of the weird nebulous areas in high school where, like, you might be spending time with someone and you're like, what are we doing? Versus, like, the other end of high school is, like, you, like, shake hands with somebody and you're like, cool, we're boyfriend and girlfriend now. Right. Like, those are the two things that happen. Yes. I find it very plausible. He clearly has a crush on her and she... And he's just getting all fired up by young Mr. Lincoln. Right. And then she's someone who has clearly written him off, which also is plausible, but then... He is nice to her at a moment when she needs it, and that kind of bridges the gap that she had built up, and then it grows from there. So, every week we rate the believability of a movie on a scale from 0 to 10, where 0 means we believe none of the romance, 10 means we believe all of it. Where would you rate The Edge of 17? I would probably give it, like, a 8 or a 9, I'd say. Yeah, I feel like it's probably, like, a 9. It's very good. It is very good. I would take a point off because she sees he's rich and has a six-pack and isn't immediately on board. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I feel like there's no flaws. In, like, I say that as a joke, but I also mean that there's, like, no actual flaws with Erwin. So I feel like she probably could have more, like, it would have made sense for her to more quickly pick up on the goodness of Erwin. Except that she's so fixated on Nick as this idea. Also, I just remembered this movie takes place over the course of, like, a week. Yes, it's very short. So there is that, too. That's where we're knocking it a bit. Yeah. Do you think that Nadine or Irwin is dateable? Irwin seems great. Irwin seems great. Nadine needs some self-work. I have hope that Nadine will become someone I want to date. I can see Nadine becoming a cool person in college. Yeah. But right now, she's kind of a mess. Yes. Which is okay. Yeah. Do you think that Nadine and Irwin will stay together? I mean, like, probably not. Nah, they They're probably teenagers. break up before going to college. Yeah. If you did have to pick one person in the edge of 17 to date, who would it be? Probably Irwin. Yeah, he's clearly the right answer. <laughs> he's an artist. He's nice. He has friends. Great pool? He doesn't. Great pool. With a waterfall? <laughs> How much steam was coming off that pool? What was going on there? I guess it's a heated pool and it's kind of cold. Yeah. Which 
sounds like an Oregon thing. Yeah. Now, many of the movies that we've discussed on this show have been turned into musicals. And I'm wondering, should The Edge of Seventeen be made into a musical? I think it would kind of work really well. I think it would work well as a musical. There's yeah. a lot there. This There's a lot of emotion that you can dad. tap into a yeah. song. The song about dealing with your dad's death. The song about fighting with your mom. And... I think this movie's commitment to the interior life of each person could be reflected really well in musicals. Now, if only there was a song called Edge of Seventeen that could have been played during this movie. I'm sorry. What a shame. Um, I don't know anything about a musical in the works, but in May 2018, they did announce a YouTube spinoff. Does it have Haley Steinfeld? So, I don't know what spinoff means. Probably Kelly Freeman not. Craig is involved. Who knows what happens with that? YouTube is another one of those things where the shows, as far as I'm concerned, don't exist. Yeah, it's not a real thing. They exist more than Facebook Watch shows, but only slightly. Yeah. So I think that about does it for The Edge of Seventeen. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what Kelly Freeman Craig does after this. Scoob. She, of course, is directing Scoob! Exclamation point, the animated Scooby-Doo movie. With a weirdly stacked cast yeah. set to come out in 2020. Let's run down this cast. I know we're uh, we're near time, but yeah. we got to talk about this cast. In the film Scoob, we have Frank Welker reprising his role as Scooby-Doo. And then Zac Efron is Fred. Gina Rodriguez is Velma. Will Forte is Shaggy. Amanda Seyfried is Daphne. And then in our supporting cast... We've got Tracy Morgan, Ken Jeong, Kiersey Clemens, Mark Wahlberg, and Jason Isaacs. Oh my god. What is this movie? Who knows? We'll find out next spring. She's also developing Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret for Gracie Films. And she's adapting a memoir called Wild Game, which is about someone who, at age 14, their mom got her to like be her accomplice in the mom conducting an affair with the dad's best friend. Oh, God. Which feels like in the right weird tonal zone for this movie. Yeah, exactly. Next week, we will start a month of Christmas movies. Woo! And we will be starting with tradition of having Fiona come to talk about a made-for-TV Christmas movie. That's right. We're talking about Vanessa Hudgens' latest Christmas movie for Netflix. It, like, just came out. It's called The Night Before Christmas. That's night spelled with a K, of course, because it is a pun. And it is about a medieval knight being transported to the 21st century to fall in love with Vanessa Hudgens um, at Christmas. Of course it is. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps other people to find the show. Last question, what's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? I think the move is ask people out while Civil War songs are playing. My advice, make movies. Oh, yeah. My other advice was actually going to be like, take people to like cool stuff like mini golf where you can do a thing. Yeah, that works too. Battle Cry of Freedom though. Until next time. I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Bye.